21 and uh, preached a whole bunch of sermons. And so we're going to look at um, all of those. We're going to, it's going to take uh, several days. Um, just kidding. Here we go. All right. 2021, we got started. Uh, I preached the first uh, sermon series that I preached and started in January was one called Choose Heaven. So anybody recognize that logo? When you see that, do you think, oh yeah, we did several weeks in this series. Okay. And it was called Choose Heaven. Here's some of the things that we talked about in Choose Heaven. Next slide. It says, uh, Jesus was teaching us about heaven and here are some things that Jesus concluded about heaven. He says, heaven is a place of community. What's that mean? That means that uh, we are the people, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to be the ones that are going to be there. And it's not going to be isolation. It's not going to be uh, all alone. It's going to be a, a community of people. And it's going to be a very good thing. But it's also, heaven is a place. What does that mean? Um, heaven is not uh, some religion, some world religions teach that uh, uh, when you die, there's a thing called nirvana and you're soul or your spirit just kind of escapes off into nothingness. Jesus didn't say that. Heaven is a place, a physical kind of a place where we're going to interact with our new bodies. And heaven is a place of unique identity, which means we're going to bring our personalities into heaven. We're all unique. We're all different. And uh, and so you guys are glad that we're all unique and we're different. And we're going to bring those uniquenesses into heaven. Heaven is a place have ultimate fellowship with God. And that's going to be a very good thing. And I don't know if you remember any of that stuff that we covered back there in January. We also said this. Next slide. He says, um, what Jesus said about uh, the next life is this. Everybody will be raised and judged. Every single, uh, every single person that has ever lived is going to live and exist for all of eternity. And we get to choose whether or not we want to be with God. He extends that to us. Or if we want to reject God. He says, anybody who trusts in him will be welcome into heaven. But nobody who rejects him will escape eternal hell. We don't like to we don't like to talk about that. We don't like to think about that. We think, well, how could a loving God do that? Well, uh, loving God does that because he gives us free choice. He didn't create robots that we must do what he wants us to do. I will obey God. You know, I'm not a robot. You're not a robot. Uh, but in order to have that freedom, there has to be choice. We get to choose to be in a relationship with God or not. And then we said this, three reasons to long for heaven in this series. We said, one is the alternative, right? Uh, nobody should want to go to hell. Hell is a very, very bad place. The Bible talks about hell. It's going to be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's going to be uh, horrible. Nobody should want to go there. And God extends to us through Jesus the opportunity to not go there. And so uh, what's another reason to long for heaven? Um, and that is the emptiness of this world. And there was a statement that I made in the in the sermon uh, series, and I said this: uh, I and you, we, uh, I, I have no idea what it is like uh, to live in a world where everyone loves me. You don't know what it's like to live in a world where everyone loves you. That's this world. There are people that. Uh, we clash with and interact with and, and don't get along with. And, and then there's, there's people of varying opinions and, and, you know, their opinions are different. And, and so there's this conflict that takes place here on this earth. But the Bible says that when we get to heaven, it will be a place of unity. Uh, there will be a great reunion when uh, the saints of old and the people that know Jesus as their Savior will be there and we will be reunited uh, with them. It's going to be a wonderful, awesome experience to be in heaven. And we said, choose heaven. So maybe you remember we uh, spent several weeks in the beginning of the year there. And, and then we did this. I preached this in another sermon in February. It's simply called True. 
True, true, true. Okay. And uh, maybe uh, you remember this uh, series because next slide here. Remember these guys, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and Shakespeare. And uh, uh, why did we bring them into the picture? Because in this sermon uh, that we talked about true, uh, we said there are people that would say, well, Plato says, or Aristotle says, or Socrates, and let's study those, and we can learn from them. They have wisdom. And Shakespeare was one of the greats. And these, these people, and we say, well, how do we know uh, what they say is true? We take it for granted that's what, what, what they said is true, uh, because other people will say, well, you can't trust the Bible. The Bible's a book of fairy tales in the Bible. And so we said, well, let's put these things under scrutiny, under a magnifying glass. And we said this about those things. The next slide says, um, so there are the dates that these people lived, uh, Socrates and Plato's, Aristotle, Shakespeare, and Jesus, okay? And uh, those, so those are, uh, in that first column, those are the timelines when they lived. Uh, we see that uh, Socrates lived uh, basically 470 to 399 BC. And we said, okay, so how do we know when uh, you go to college and your professor is there and he's uh, telling you to read something from Socrates or he quotes something, how do we know that what they said is true. How do we know that? Uh, well, archaeologists do this thing where they go and they dig and they find pieces of manuscript um, and uh, and they discover these manuscripts and then they compare them to what is uh, historically known about what they've said uh, to the things that they have found that were written years later and they compare those things and they line them all up. Uh, but here's the interesting thing about a guy like Socrates. There has never been a single manuscript, a historical uh, archaeological find that has been attributed to him. And so we don't really know what Socrates said, but we do know that Plato, Plato uh, was a student of Socrates and that he said many things and people will study his uh, works and he lived 427, about 80 years there. And there, in, it, with all of the archaeological uh, digs that have ever taken place, they've only found about 300 or 250 fragments of what have been attributed archaeologists. They find this. And they date it. They say, hmm, this is about 900 A.D. Uh, when these things were uh, written. How do they compare to what we attribute to uh, uh, Plato that has said? And so there's this gap from when Plato lived to the oldest documents that archaeologists have found that attribute to him. There's a 1,200-year gap. And so we're just assuming that uh, over those 1,200 years, uh, they remained true. And so archaeologists find Aristotle, uh, there's been 50 manuscripts found uh, dating um, 900, uh, about 900 AD, and they've discovered those manuscripts are only about 56% accurate. So you open up your textbook, say, this is what Aristotle said, and then they look at the manuscript that's 900 years old, and they go, hmm, well, you know, it doesn't quite line up, right? And Okay, so uh, Shakespeare, uh, maybe I, you remember I read a quote to you, of course you remember this, well, you, you all remember that. exactly everything that I say always, and, and uh, but Here's what here's here's the good news. You can go to our website, find all of these sermons, and you can spend the rest of the week just watching the sermons. And so, and, you know, what an exciting! Oh, I can't. Why oh, wouldn't be just a great time? Uh, okay. And uh, so here's the thing: Socrates uh, or Shakespeare. There is nothing. He was only 400 years ago, and they archaeologists and, and historians would tell you there is nothing that Shakespeare wrote in his own hand that we have today. And so it's just a true. And so, oh, well, yeah, Shakespeare wrote that. Well, how do you know? Prove it. But then uh, the Bible, the Bible, okay? So Jesus, Jesus lived um, from about 7 uh, AD to 33 uh, uh, AD. And, and the Bible was written from 50 to 130 AD. There's 56, over 5,600 fragments have been found of the Bible. 
and um, um, from as close as 170 uh, A.D., which would have been just just a few years after it was all written, and they found out to be 99.5 percent accurate. 95. And so you say, "Aha! Well, there is inaccuracy." So how does that work? Well, let's uh, kind of. Do you guys know how to spell love? L-O-V-E, right? And so, uh, so for put uh, put a sentence. And um, uh, did you laugh? Somebody laughed when I said that, right? Because uh, because most uh, Laura knows I can't spell the. You know, T H U, right? And and uh, so and so the word love. And so picture uh, for God so loved the world, right? John three. For and so they might find a manuscript that says for God so, and the L isn't there, but the O V E is there. The world. And then they find another manuscript that says, For God so L, the O isn't there, but the V-E is there, the world. And so, and they'll find four manuscripts, and then uh, maybe there'll be a letter dropped from all of those. But then when you compare them all, it's easy to fill in the word love, because uh, this one's got the L and this one. And so you crunch those. All this to say, all this to say, the Bible is the most scrutinized and the most archaeologically verifiable book on planet Earth. No other book on Earth stands up to the scrutiny uh, that the Bible can stand up on, under. And all of a sudden, and th- those are just good uh, facts to sort of put out there and to understand that you can study these kinds of things and that you don't have to put your head in the sand in order to believe that Scripture is true and that God is real uh, because the Bible is so unique in so many different ways. And anyway, all right. Then I preached a sermon. Uh, it was called a, a Great Small Church. And this is just a, a, an analogy. Analogy that uh, was introduced to me by a guy named Carl Vader, and it's just a great analogy. Uh, General Dwight Eisenhower. Um, General Dwight Eisenhower was being uh, interviewed. He was the great general in World War II, and he was being interviewed, and he said, uh, is there any one particular guy that you would say won World War II uh, for us? And he said, yeah, you know. And uh, he says it's Andrew Higgins, you know, and everybody knows who Andrew Higgins is, and so it's real obvious why he's the guy, uh, but nobody knows who Andrew Higgins is. But Andrew Higgins is the guy that invented the Higgins boat. And I think there's a couple of pictures there. That's Andrew Higgins, and then this is the Higgins boat. And uh, and so, what's that have to do with anything? Okay, I think click it again. There is there a should be a picture. Don't no picture. There it is. Good deal. And uh, and so battleships are these amazing, massive ships. All right, and they have these big guns and they can do amazing things. They can defend from aircraft and they can launch you know uh, shells uh, uh, miles and miles. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, can, they can launch shells miles and miles. They can pummel the beach. Uh, but it takes them miles to do a U-turn. And what they're not good at is getting uh, soldiers on the beach, right? And so they needed a boat uh, that could get uh, troops on the beach. And they couldn't, have, they couldn't have won the war if they couldn't get the soldiers on the And we said, okay, what's that have to do with the church? There is a place for mega churches. Uh, mega churches can do things that small churches can't do. They can fund missions in uh, tremendous ways and things like that, maybe beyond what we would be able to do. But there are things that a small church can do. A small church can be uh, more maneuverable, and a small church can uh, maybe uh, meet a specific need more rapidly than a major, uh, and, and maybe even um, specific needs of people in the congregation in ways of big church. And we, so we said, it's, it's all right. We are a good church and a healthy church, and we not, might be a big church, but that's okay. And so we just said, uh, we're going to move forward uh, with that. All right. Then I preached this sermon. 
um, a reaching out. It's about evangelism. It's about evangelism. And there's just some things here I wanted to review. Um, okay, first let me ask you this question. Just for my, on my for, so I can go home and curl up in my bed and sleep like a baby, um, knowing that I am loved. I need to ask you this question. When I show you the Higgins picture up there and stuff like that, do you remember any of that stuff? Do you see that and go, oh, yeah? Huh? No? Nobody remembered it at all? Yes. Yes? Okay, yes. And then when we talked about those different people and the archaeological proofs for Scripture, do you remember seeing those images and talking about those things? Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. Good. But if I were to ask you, could you tell me, uh, you know, something that I preached last year? Because you know, I've said this, I said... Uh, I've been doing this year in review thing for the last 20 years or so um, as a preacher. And uh, I've told you this, I told you this last year. When I go back and look, oh, I preached that. That was this year? I thought that was two years ago, you know? And and we got really good forgetterers. And so I think it's important. And so here, okay, here we go. Where are we? We said the evangelism. And we said this. People far away from God are kind of caught People, there's people that love God, they love being in church, and they want to be in Sunday school, and they want to read their Bibles, and they want to be close and connected to God. But then there are people that are far away from God. And those people are generally caught in between one of these two uh, kind of spectrums out there. Um, Maybe they had some bad religion. Uh, Maybe when they grew up, maybe their parents or their grandparents, uh, they forced them. You're going to church where you like it or not. And they just, they hated, they just ended up hating church. They thought church, maybe maybe there was somebody at church that betrayed them or turned their back or stabbed them in the back. And and they just said, no more. This religion stuff's not for me. And so they're over there. And then there's, uh, but then the other spectrum is, there is no God. There is no God. We are the result of a big bang, a giant cosmic accident, and you are meaningless, and you are purposeless, and you simply evolved, and you're going to die, and that's the end of you, and you know, whoopee, do whatever you want, live and die. And so if you're far away from God, you're kind of on this continuum of, you know, religion is stupid, or, you know, there is no God, and I'm just going to do whatever I want, I'm going to die, and you're out there in this place, but then um, maybe... What people need to realize, they need to be close to God. And we said, maybe another reason they're far away from God is because they don't really know God. And we said, uh, why do people leave the faith? And we said, there's bad gods, right? And we said, Andy Stanley put together this list and said, some people, they have a wrong understanding of the God of the Bible. And we call them guardrail God. And some people say, hey, you're going down the road, and hey, you know, you're just, you like to drive fast, you're going on, you're flying on the road, and uh, you know there's a guardrail over there, and you know there's a guardrail over here, and so you, you're free to kind of move around, go as fast or slow as you want, kind of wiggle around, as long as you don't go out of your lane. But if you do go out of your lane, you know that that guardrail's, you're not really going to get hurt because the guardrail's going to keep you in the lane. Some people think that's who God is. You kind of do whatever you want, go wherever you want, but God's got my back. He's not going to let anything bad happen to me, and they think that's who God, he, script says, in this life, you will have trouble. God, basically, God says, in this life, you're going to go through hard things. You know, he's not guardrail God. And they say, uh, on-demand God, uh, life's not going my way. You know, I need to go and I need to put a, a, a quarter into the vending machine. I need to punch up God, and then God's going to deliver to me what I want. The Bible never says that that's who God is. He's, he's not going to bail you out. He's not going to, he's going to love you in the, right where you're at. And he's going to help you get to where he wants you to be. But that's like a warm, fuzzy God. 
Uh, maybe, uh, you know, you, you go to a retreat, you go to a camp, you have a, you, maybe you went to a church once upon a time and you heard a great sermon. And, um, and then you felt really warm and fuzzy, but then the warm and the fuzzy goes away. And then you kind of wonder, is God real? I don't feel it anymore. Well, if you've been married for a while, you know that your feelings for your spouse, they ebb and flow and, and all that. And, and that's the way that that, and so they have this wrong idea of who is God. And maybe that's why they've sort of rejected him. And, and <clears throat> what is this next one? Um, Book of John, chapter 15, verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus said that. God has loved me and I've loved you. Now remain in my love. That's what God wants us to do. And so we're to be grafted in, grafted in. Uh, that means a heart, mind, body, soul, spirit. Uh, we, we turn our lives over to God. We learn from him and we, uh, we tap into him through uh, scripture. And we, we do that uh, because here's kind of what happens if we don't. Uh, when we cut ourselves off of the vine, maybe you remember this picture. The very second that the fruit is cut from the tree, it begins to die. And so um, maybe you remember, I think it'll be a couple pictures up here of some bananas. A remain means to con- continue in me. Uh, and, and so we talked about those bananas. And you, you, you've had the bananas that they kind of get brown. And then all the gnats kind of start to fly around. Uh, they be, as soon as they're cut off the tree, they begin to die. And that's what happens to us spiritually. As soon as we, as soon as we uh, are disengaged from being connected to God and cut off the vine, uh, our soul begins to uh, rot and move away. You remember the picture? Anybody remember the, the banana pictures? That's a great illustration. That's a great one. Man, you should have been texting your friends that one after. Oh, then this happened. We had, in April, we had uh, Easter Sunday. And uh, Easter Sunday, we talked about Christ as risen. And that was, uh, that was a lot of fun that day. We had the Easter egg hunt. And uh, we had, uh, I don't know, about 100 kids that were out there running around picking up Easter eggs. And, uh, and then I preached a, uh, a sermon uh, series. I preached a series called Together. Together. Maybe you recognize this picture of Together. And, and we we're talking about what it is for a church family to be together. And I, I showed you these images. Uh, there was a garbage bag, a zip tie, and a ratchet strap. And we said, that's the church. And that's because we're going to kidnap people and we're going to... No, that's not what that is. Um, that's not what that is. We said, what do all of those things have in common? Those things all have this idea of uh, they cinch, they pull in, they, they, they reach out and they pull people in. And that's what the church is supposed to be like, a place that reaches out and draws people in. That's what the church has in common with all of those things. And so we said this, a healthy Christian fellowship helps us. Now, what's that mean? Um, we should have, and just kind of like we shared prayer requests a little bit this morning, and uh, when the church family, if you're going through something difficult, a lot of times people call me or they'll call the office or call Laura and say, hey, will you put this out on the prayer list? Because uh, we want other, we want our family to know that we need prayer. And so it helps us. And Healthy Christian Fellowship, there's accountability there. And hopefully when things start to go wrong, you're able to reach out to people in the church family and they come alongside you and they help you get back on the track. And it improves your testimony. What's that mean? Um, if, if I hang out with people that want me to do bad things, then people will say that I'm the kind of person that likes to do bad things. But if I hang out with people that want to better know Jesus, then people are going to know that I'm the kind of person that hangs out with people that want to better know Jesus. And so my testimony, my witness of my life, as people are looking at me and sizing me up, it helps me to do that. Healthy fellowship is our responsibility. It's our responsibility. What's that mean? 
God expects us to put in the effort to stay tapped into the vine, to stay connected to the church. He's not going to follow us around and say, now come back to church. I'm coming up to church. He says, I love you. You know what's best. Do what's best. Get involved with the church. Then I preached a sermon series that uh, was called uh, uh, Chapter 1.5. And that's because there are three books in the Bible that only have one chapter. There's only one book in the Bible that has two chapters, but I only did the first chapter, so I only did half of that book, and so it's called 1.5. Anyway, here's, here's what we said. Maybe you remember this. Jude, the book of Jude only has one chapter. And uh, Jude verses uh, 3 and 4 say, uh, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt... I had to write you and urge you to contend for the faith. And we said, what does contend mean? What does it mean to contend for the faith? And I showed you this picture. Because this is contending for the faith. It means you fight for it. You wrestle with it. It means that, uh, you put it in a headlock and you grab a hold of it. And you try to, and you try to get your will to submit to the will of God, and that we are to contend for the faith. And that was uh, what Jude was uh, impressing upon us. And then uh, maybe you remember we did the book of Philemon. Paul writes in the book of Philemon. He was writing, um, Paul was writing to Philemon, who owned the slave Onesimus, and Onesimus had escaped, and then he meets Paul, and he converts to Christianity. He says, listen, Onesimus, you need to go back and see Philemon, and you need to go back to work for him, and do what you committed to him that you would do. And then Paul uh, in verse 1, he says, Paul, remember Paul was writing to, he was in prison when he was writing. It's Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. And uh, so he was in prison writing this and in chains. And uh, But as he is writing to Philemon, he's, he's communicating to him, I don't consider myself a prisoner of Rome. I am a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. That means I am everything I do. I'm being held captive uh, by Jesus. And so what does it mean to be held captive by Jesus? And we said these things. When captivated by Christ, you look beyond yourself. Here he is in chains. And he is writing a letter on behalf of another individual to try to help both of them out. He's not being self-centered. He's not writing a letter, oh, please, send me bail money, you know, get me out of this situation. He is looking out for other people. And uh, he has an optimistic outlook. He's like, even though I'm here, I can help these guys. And he was a leader in the church, and they leaded, he led uh, for the greater good. It's not always about me. It's I'm going to put myself second, and I'm going to. And so that was from the book of Philemon. And then maybe you remember we looked at. Oh, you just say this one out loud because it's fun to say. Obadiah. Obadiah. All right, we did the book of Obadiah, and um, uh, so verse one of the book of Obadiah. Uh, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Dun, dun, dun. Remember, what is Edom? What are, who are the Edomites? Who are the Edomites, right? And, uh, and remember uh, Father Abraham and the Old Testament. Abraham has a son, and his son is Isaac. And then Isaac has twins, right? And the twins were uh, Jacob and Esau, right? And then uh, Jacob uh, ends up having a son named Joseph. Now, what's the significance of that? Uh, remember, God uh, goes to Abraham, and he says, I want you to leave the, the land of Ur, and I want you to go set up camp in the land of Canaan, which ultimately is where Jerusalem is today, the nation of Israel is today. So he moves there. But then remember um, that uh, um, 
because there was a famine, um, Jacob's uh, ends up, at, uh, wait a minute. Uh, here we go. Uh, I'm get, uh, this is a way more detail that I should be trying to spit out right now. And so, anyway, here's the thing. Remember that the nation of Israel ends up in slavery in Egypt. The nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and then Moses comes and leads them out. Well, what happens there? Right? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Jacob's descendants all went to Egypt, but Esau's descendants all stayed in the land of Canaan and populated that whole area for 400 years while the descendants of Jacob were in, uh, in Egypt and their uh, families were growing and things like that. And we said that today, if you were to go to the Muslim community and say, who is your forefathers? What are your ancestors? They would say, we come uh, from the, we are all descendants of Esau. But if you go to the Jews and the Christians, they would say, we are descendants of Jacob. Jacob, okay? So these two bloodlines, um, they, and then what, um, the, uh, the Israelites end up staying. Next picture, next picture. The, the Israelites all stand in that squared in area there called the United Kingdom. They're living there. But then remember the Babylonian Empire comes in and pushes them out of that area. And that they were, uh, in order for the Jews to escape, they went through this area that was called the King's Highway. Here's a picture of the King's Highway. And it's in this area called Petra. And as they were making their way through that area, the Edomites, the Edomites, um, they grabbed up the Jews and took them back and turned them back over to their enemies, the Babylonians. Okay, so what is what all is that? What's that all mean? This is the significance of that. The Edomites were actually from the same bloodline as the Jews were, but when these guys were trying to escape. Uh, the Babylonian Empire that was destroying them, these guys, the Edomites, didn't side with the Jews. Uh, They turned their back on them. And so symbolically, they were turning their back on God's people. And then remember, there was all of this wrath that was going to come their way because they had turned their back on God. And the the moral of the story is don't turn your back on God. But it was this fun story of... uh, uh, which I should have probably not tried to recap right now because it's way too detailed. And so this would be a good one to go back and watch online. That's a good one, a good one to go back. All right, you'll never be back. Here we go. <clears throat> then I preached this sermon series. Remember this sermon series? VIP, VIP. And it stands for a very important person. And we said this. Uh, when Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior and you are in a relationship with God, God looks at you. And he says, you are very important to me. Uh, uh, you are so important to me. Uh, you, you, you are not uh, all of these things. You're not these things. You are what I say you are. And uh, you are not your IQ. And, and you are not uh, your athletic ability. And you're not your vocal ability. And you're not any of those things. You are what I say you are. And here's the way we phrase that up. There were three of these. Uh, first one is this. What, you do, what you've done is not who you are. And so all of us, you know, in our weaker moments, we can, when we're laying there quietly and we think, oh, we can think back in our lives and we've all done some things that we're very ashamed of. And we've done things we wish that we wouldn't have done. But what you've done is not who you are. Who you are, you are very important to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son for you. That's the way God sees you. And then we said this. This was another one. What's been done to you does not determine your value. 
Uh, some people grew up and they had horrible upbringing with horrible parents or maybe they didn't even have parents and the people that took care of them didn't really take care of them and and so they can feel like a victim and rightly so in a lot of ways they were victims of things but what's been done to you does not determine your value what determines your value is that God says I love you and you are my child and then we said this about that what you struggle with does not define you um, we can struggle with all kinds of things in our life. We struggle with anger. We can struggle with uh, addiction. You can struggle uh, with uh, um, forgiving people. Struggle with all. But what we struggle with does not define us. What defines us is that God says, "You are my child, and I love you, and I care about you." And so, uh, VIP is a great series. And then um, that was Bev. That was uh, um, Bev. Uh, from across the street, a skeleton, she made little uh, VIP uh, bookmarks. Maybe you remember, and she did that, and she was handling those out. Then I preached another sermon. It's called um, Countryside Christian Church or Countryside Safe Space. Dun, dun, dun. Are we going to be Countryside Christian Church, or are we going to be a safe space? And here's the way we define a safe space church. A safe space church keeps members happy. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I'm not, I'm going to... I'm not going to preach anything that might be too controversial. It'll make you all feel good, you know. Um, avoid controversial issues, you know. We're not going to talk about, um, you know, the culture or homosexuality, or we're not going to talk about abortion or any of those things that might make us feel uncomfortable. We're not going to tiptoe on any of those things. We're just going to keep it light and fluffy, and that's what a safe church would do. Um, and uh, we're going to remain very cautious. We're going to remain very cautious. But uh, as you know, that's not who we are, and we don't do those things, and uh, we tackle these things head on. And then I wanted to just show you something that I think illustrates that you guys, y'all, um, point at everybody else and go in the room and say, y'all, uh, we're willing to do something that I think was very bold of you to do, uh, because some of you guys have been around this church for a long time. Uh, some of you have only been here for five, and some for ten, and some for twenty, and some uh, for the last thirty years. This place has looked very much as it has looked, and so I just wanted to go down a little bit of memory lane with you guys, and let's just look at some of these pictures together. Um, how well does that show up? <clears throat> and uh, you remember when the lobby looked like? Okay, we're just going to get a next picture. That was the, the, the lower lobby looked like that. Next picture. These are kind of before and after. Some of you guys remember, you recognize the people that are in that room right there. And uh, they were the ones that kind of helped us do some of that stuff. Here's another picture. Kind of, and then now that's what it looks like, right? The before and the after. The before and the after. Next picture looks like that now. I think it looks sharp. I hope you guys like it. Next picture. Remember when the hallway looked like that? It wasn't very long ago. It was in June. Next picture. Go ahead. Yep, I don't know if you can remember. It's just, isn't that crazy how different that looks? And uh, next one, we'll just kind of keep moving through these guys here. Next one. And remember when the lobby looked like that? The lobby looked like, wasn't that long ago? It was in July. And um, then we uh, said, like, hey, let's cut some holes in the wall, right? And uh, remember when the lobby looked, just look at that one for a minute. That's hard to even, right now, isn't it kind of even hard to remember that? No? Yes? Yeah, Okay. And uh, just and next one, there we go. Lobby, yeah, that was before, no, that was the door was in there. Next one, this was all this year. This was all this year. Yeah, I cut those big old doorways in there. A bunch of people helped carry out all that brick and rock and everything. And uh, here's Gabe Garcia. There you go. I think he cut that. I think he just punched that wall, and the thing, the brick just fell out. 
And so next one there. There we go. Working on that thing. Here we go. We know it's true. Yeah, the, the after. September. That was in September that it looked like that. That wasn't very long ago. One more. Yeah, here's a before. Oh, wait. So now I wonder. Now I wonder. You know, next year when I do this, will there be an after? Will there be done, done, done? Okay, there's going to be a meeting right after church today from the leadership, and they'll be determining whether or not. All right, hey, um, next picture. Um, then, uh, isn't this exciting? Do you guys just feel like you're going down memory lane together? Or are you guys ready to go home and go to bed? Uh, here we go. July, July. We're almost done. July. Uh, remember there were the, uh, the Olympic rings were hanging from the ceiling? Anybody remember that? And you remember the Olympic torch? Remember the, do you remember when we lit the Olympic torch and the laser beam that shined from the back of the room and dropped down and lit the torch? Wasn't that exciting? So, uh, oh, that's so good. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun, man. That was a good time, right? And so, uh, what was the, uh, the Olympic series? It was, it was three weeks. It was the crowd, the athlete, and the coach. The crowd, the athlete, and the coach. And this is what we said about this. The crowd. Uh, they go, why does the crowd show up at the Olympics? They go to cheer. They go to identify with the team. They go to share in the victory. Um, they are supportive with their time and their money and the attitude. And we said this, hey, church family, why do you go to church? Why should you come to church? Come to cheer for our God, right? And to identify with the team, our, our brothers and sisters, and to share in the victory that is Jesus. And that we are supposed to support the church with our time and with our money and with our attitude. And then we, so it was the, um, um, the crowd, the athlete, and it says, um, how do you become a great athlete is the same way that you become a great Christ follower. Um, you have to have transparency. The, um, the, uh, the athlete has got to be willing to be scrutinized at every level, right? The gymnast, even the way that they hold their fingertips uh, when they're doing their performance is going to be judged, you know? But there's got to be somebody that stands back and says, you know, my friend, I could, there's a part of you that we can, we can work on this together. We can improve this. And we as Christians uh, need to be uh, willing to have other people in our life that come alongside of us and say, you know, let's see if there, we can't work on this area in your life. They have to have a clear goal. And uh, obviously the Olympic athlete has the clear goal. We need to have Christian goals in our life, that I'm going to read my Bible or memorize scripture or be at church more or whatever, and there needs to be accountability. And then that was the uh, the crowd, the athlete, and then we talked about the uh, uh, the coach, the coach, right? Uh, what makes a, um, a great coach is that they're centered on the athlete, and um, what makes a great uh, uh, Christian, uh, uh, excuse me, a coach serves the one that they want to succeed. All they're about is the other. I'm, gonna, I'm the coach, but I want my athlete to win the gold. And so it's an attitude of a servant's heart. What makes a, great, a Christ-centered servant? They crave victory for the other. Uh, others' victory gives fulfillment. That's what a servant's heart does. And serve with your giftedness. We're, we're all gifted in different ways. Some people can sing. Some people can teach. Some people can mow the yard. We're different, uh, gifted in different ways and that we serve well in the areas. Remember those things? We talked about those things. That was a fun series. We played the Olympic theme song. Remember playing? Everybody now. Um, then uh, in August, I, uh, uh, I preached a sermon series that was called How to Argue with God and Win. 
And uh, what that came from was maybe you remember I said uh, uh, I could get into arguments with my kids and they could win because I would tell them, I would say, it's time for you to go to bed. And they would say, but dad, you said we have to brush our teeth before we go to bed. I said, oh yeah, you're right. Go brush your teeth and then go to bed, right? And so they could win the argument by reminding me what I said. And we said, well, how do we argue with God and win? We remind God of his reputation, that he is a winner, right? And he is God. We remind God of his attributes, that he is loving and kind and giving. We remind God uh, that to continue to work, that can continue the work of his son. And uh, we remind God of his promises, that he's promised to love us and to protect us and look after us and that he won't fail us. And we, we remind God of his record. We remind God of his compassion. And so when we pray into God, we, we remind him, God, you're so awesome. And you said, you said, God, that you would give me a peace that would surpass my understanding and that you would give me strength when I'm in this difficult place. And you remind God. Then I preach this sermon series. <clears throat> we're, almost, we're very, very close to the end, everybody. Um, we're very, very close to the end. But it's fun, it's fun to review these things, because maybe you remember this. I preached a sermon series, and it's called, Who Am I and What Am I Here For? And I had the little, I had the little toy uh, that was up here. And uh, you guys know the little shape toy. And, uh, the, you know, the shape toy, the, the piece only goes into the one place that it fits. And it's very unique and specially designed. And we said, that's us. Uh, none of us are alike. We are all different. And so what is my shape? And this is the way that we defined shape. What is my shape? We all have different spiritual gifts, right? Uh, we all have a different heart, which means a passionate about different uh, things. We all have different abilities. We all have a different personality. We've all had different experiences in our life that makes me different than you and you different than me. And I am to use my shape to fit into the kingdom of God and to be, uh, to find my place where I fit in and to help and serve and work and do these kind of things. And then, okay, now you guys are going to know we're getting really close to the end here. I preach this sermon series, be like Jesus, make me a copy, make me a copy, right? And that was just a few weeks ago. And uh, what was that series all about? Uh, what's a copy machine do? A copy machine is you take the blank piece of paper, you put it in, and then it spits it out being made a copy. That's what the church is. We come in here as a blank sheep. But we identify with Christ. We get his light to shine upon us. He's embedded upon us so that when we leave here, we're more like Christ. And we said we want to be more like Christ. Jesus was baptized. That's why we want to be baptized. Jesus was tempted, we're going to be tempted. Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. Uh, Jesus died, we're going to die. Jesus raised from the dead, we are also going to be raised to a new life. We're going to be with Jesus, or we're not. But if we accept Jesus, we will be. And Jesus had a ministry, and we are to have a ministry. And then I preached a sermon series uh, called <clears throat> The King Has Come. Remember? Remember that one, anybody? Were any of you guys here? And there were little characters we said that maybe we could add to the nativity scene. Anybody remember any of the little characters we might add to the nativity scene? Simeon. All right. Joseph. Boom. Yeah, look at that. Wow, you guys. And we said it would either be King Herod or it would be us. Okay, hey, listen. That was 2021. That was 2021. We are now in 2022. And uh, my prayer is every week, um, just so you know, not that it matters, but so you know, um, I love to do this. Uh, I get excited because during the week, 
uh, I know what the sermon is going to be, and there's usually something in there that I have had to preach to myself before I ever get in here on Sunday morning, and then I'm excited to come in here and share with you guys. And uh, it's not about me, but I just I'm excited. God is good. He is good. And it's fun to be creative in the way that you would present his goodness. And I want you to be excited about that, engaged in that. And I want you to think about these things. I'm hoping that you're getting information that you'll put on your heart and that you'll be able to share with other people because God is good and he loves us. Listen, we're heading into 2022 and everybody already hopes that 2022 will be better than 2021 in a lot of ways, right? And it can be. And the one thing that we can all do to make 2022 much better, the one thing that we can all do to make 2022 much better than 2021 is be closer to Jesus. Be closer to Jesus. And so I'm just going to ask you, you'll, you'll be praying for our church Um, The ministry of Kids Club, we've got so many kids and so many adults and so many people. And then through impact, people come and they're, they're learning about us and we want to engage them. And we're wishing that all of those families, that uh, some of them are very far away from God. And they, they, they bring their kid here. They don't even know why. They just know their kids here. But we want to get to know them. And we want, and we want them to be engaged in who Jesus is. And we need to pray to that end. There needs to be a lot more people in this community that love Jesus. And we are the ones with the responsibility to do that. Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would help us, that you would work on our hearts, that you would remind us of things that we already know and help bring those to the forefront of our mind, that we would be the people you call us to be. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus and may we lean our lives into him fully. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. I find it's always the lie that is loudest. I know the one with the power is never the one who is shouting.